This week on the show, we have a FreeBSD on the RISC-V architecture for you, a bit of Xenix history package base with official packages, recovering of lost text by core dumping Firefox, Fugita 7.4 has been released, LibreSSL 3.8.2 is out, OpenSMTPD as well, 7.4.0.p0, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 533, Package the Base. Recording on the 8th of November 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We hope this podcast finds you well in good spirits. No, not alcohol, but, you know, mind and body. You know what I mean. Whiskey's a good spirit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who has something about that? Uh, we, um, we are in good spirits, and uh, the Clara folks also are looking towards the future, it seems, in their latest article on the website. Uh, this time, FreeBSD on the RISC-V architecture. Yes, RISC-V has a lot of potential, and future is definitely something we should uh, or in the future we should look at that architecture a bit more the article goes the majority of people in the tech community are well aware of the two main chip architectures x86 and arm each has its own strengths and weaknesses today however we're continuing our conversation on risk 5 by introducing the way freebsd would work on the risk 5 platform and if you need to catch up they have their own uh, previous entries on the topic so that's linked from the article and that's the kind of a teaser at the beginning. Introduction reads, the RISC-V architecture is FreeBSD's youngest platform uh, that is supported, but despite its age, it has a lot of momentum behind it. The world has grown accustomed to the x86 architecture, forming a default basis of the personal computer, but the continued growth of the 64-bit ARM architecture challenged this notion in the rich father. And RISC-V continues this challenge. On a long timeline, changes like this are inevitable, so it is important for a project on the scale and scope of FreeBSD to be proactive about supporting the hardware platforms of the future and letting go of the platforms of the past. Yeah, we have a little later in the show something about i386 becoming tier 2, uh, but it is, this is uh, just just came out today when we recorded uh, this article here will introduce this history of the RISC-V platform and supporting it uh, is important for the FreeBSD project. So what is RISC-V, the history? The RISC-V, uh, V, or pronounced RISC-V, the ISA started as a research project at the University of California, Berkeley. You know, another popular project that started there, right? Um, RISC-V here in 2010. So the intention behind this project was to provide a new CPU architecture free of the licensing restrictions that exist in other ISAs, integrated chip architectures, that is. Permissively license the ISA and related specifications under BSD and Creative Commons licenses enables entities in academia and industry alike to design implement and modify the RISC-V CPUs without the need to pay heavy licensing fees. The RISC-V architecture was not the first ISA to adopt such a license, but the fact that it has done so from its inception rather than later in its life offers something unique, a modern CPU architecture which anyone can adopt or extend free of charge. 
So the work on FreeBSD support for this new architecture began in 2015, so five years later, with the initial version of the port being merged to the FreeBSD source tree at the beginning of the following year. While this early version ran mainly on software simulators and FPGA soft chips, this was no small feat. In fact, FreeBSD was the first mainstream open source operating system to officially include RISC-V support in its source tree. Since then, support has continued to grow and improve. The release of FreeBSD 13 saw the platform support tier increase to tier 2 and the production of official release images. So that is quite something already. Despite recently celebrating its 10th birthday, RISC-V is still young on the scale of CPU architectures. There exist a few RISC-V systems capable of running FreeBSD, with most arriving each year. But on the whole, these chips don't yet offer a price uh, or performance that is competitive with 64-bit ARM or uh, x86. So they have also a uh, section about what's involved in porting, like how uh, difficult this is or uh, what actual challenges you have to overcome. Porting an entire operating system can be a huge effort, despite the fact that we like software to have layers of abstractions, changing something as fundamental as the underlying CPU architecture has implications at all levels of the software stack. So on the surface, it might seem like most of what's required is a compiler toolchain capable of generating RISC-V instructions. After all, C code is C code, right? Hmm. For typical user space programs making use of standard libraries, this can be the case, but it's certainly not true in general. Many of the systems and libraries that enable portable quote-unquote software can be, uh, can be done so because they uh, enable themselves hiding the necessary details. Things like libc, the, the dynamic linker, the C runtime, all of these require intimate knowledge of the processor-specific ABI, the application programming or application binary interface, and are under the purview of the operating system to implement. And the kernel itself presents some of the largest portability challenges. Most modern CPU architectures offer similar yet incompatible interfaces for things all operating systems take for granted. Mechanisms such as the trap or interrupt handling, virtual memory management, device I.O., and discovery of all require uh, unique implementations adapted to the CPU in questions. So this collection of CPU-specific code is referred to as the machine-dependent layer of the FreeBSD kernel, and porting it to a new architecture can take months of full-time work. Uh, unfortunately, the work doesn't end there. Device driver code can often be shared across different platforms, but sometimes doing so will expose platform-specific assumptions made when the code was originally written. Bootloaders and release images present yet another set of platform-specific challenges, and new architectures will typically play catch-up for several years as they try to reach feature parity with more mature architectures. Uh, then they have a question why support a new architecture and they go a little bit deeper into uh, that question going uh, or taking an, an excerpt from the FreeBSD Committers Guide which describes the project's point of view on the subject of supporting multiple architectures and uh, the decision to adapt support for a new architecture to FreeBSD comes down to two factors, perceived interest and relevance to the project and someone willing to do the work, right? If everyone's interested but no one does the work, then well, that doesn't go very far. So what will the future bring at the end? It is still too early to clearly see the future of RISC-V. The ISA presents a compelling case for a replacement for small and or highly customized embedded CPUs due to its modular and extendable nature and also uh, the good power savings that can achieve. Uh, it's also quickly becoming a clear favorite in academia, providing a cost-free and permissively licensed platform for research and teaching. However, it's hard to say how well RISC-V will do in other areas of the industry, although it's being rapidly adopted in the embedded and microcontroller spaces where flexibility and cost are low. 
or our key. The general purpose uh, computing spaces are much more difficult to break into. Competing in a server or commodity hardware spaces means going up against the giants x86 underscore 64 and 64-bit ARM. Although RISC-V hardware and support continues to improve year after year, it's still not yet offering a clear advantage over these more well-established architecture uh, in general purpose computing environments. Only time can tell how these things will unfold, but previously is early and improving support for the RISC-V architecture makes it a viable option for the platforms that will be built on top of this technology. Watch this space. Okay, a step away from the future back into the past where everything was warm and comfortable. This is uh, a bit of Xenix history um, from the website cfigure1.com by Rob Ferguson. And Rob writes, From 1986 to 1989, I worked in the Xenix group. And there's a footnote here. Xenix, all uppercase, is a... is probably rendered in all caps with a trademark sign, but none of us ever wrote it that way. For ease of reading, I'm going to follow our internal tradition of just capitalizing the first letter. It was my first job out of school, and I was the most junior person on the team. I was hopelessly naive, inexperienced, generally clueless, and borderline incompetent. But my coworkers were kind, supportive, and enormously forgiving. Just a lovely bunch of folks. Microsoft decided to exit the Xenix business in 1989, but before the group was dispersed into the winds, we held a wake. Many of the old hands at Microsoft had worked on Xenix at some point, so the party was filled with much of the senior development of staff across the company. There was cake, beer, and nostalgia. Stories were told, most of which I can't repeat. You think after 30 years you should be able to tell the stories. Yeah, good memory. <laughs> some of the longer-serving folks dug through their files to find particularly amusing Xenix-related documents, and they were copied and distributed to the attendees. If memory serves, it was a cooperative effort between a number of senior developers to produce the timeline, this timeline, detailing all the major releases of Xenix. Got a lot of images in this post. You should you should look at it. It's a timeline of an operating system. Um, the major milestones on the history of Xenix go from the PDP eleven, the Z eight thousand, the sixty eight K, eighty eighty six, NS sixteen O thirty two. AE286 and the 386. I have no personal knowledge of the OEM relationships before 1986, but I do know there were additional minor ports and OEMs that aren't listed on the timeline. Um, E.g. NS, but the 32 or 16 is there, yeah, like some of them. But the best of my understanding, this hits the major points. Since we're on the topic, I should say that I've encountered a surprising amount of confusion about the history of Xenix. So here are some things I know. Xenix was a version of AT&T Unix, ported and packaged by Microsoft. It was offered for sale to the public in August, in, in the August 25th, 1980 issue of Computer World. Microsoft is pleased to announce there will be no 16-bit software crisis. It was originally priced between $2,000 and $9,000 per copy, depending on the number of users. Yep. Uh, Microsoft owns the Xenix trademark and had a Xenix master a master Unix license with AT&T, which allowed them to sub-license Xenix to other vendors. Xenix was licensed by a variety of OEMs and then either bundled with their hardware or sold as an optional extra. Ports were available for a variety of different architectures, including the Z8000, Motorola 68K, the NS16032, and various Intel processors. In 1983, IBM contracted with Microsoft to port Xenix to their forthcoming AT286-based machines, codenamed Salmon. I 
that don't because they die upstream. Um, the result oh, was really? IBM Personal Computer Xenix <laughs> for the PCAT. By this time, there was growing retail demand for Xenix on IBM-compatible personal computer hardware, but Microsoft made this strategic decision to not sell Xenix in the consumer market. Instead, they entered into an agreement with a company called Santa Cruz Operation. That's Sco. So the food here, yes, the company known as Sco, but it wasn't the same organization as the Sco who were involved in the ill-advised Linux lawsuit in the early 2000s. There's a complex and somewhat sad story about how the name ended up being transferred from one group to the other, but it's not worth telling. Even without sourcing retail development to scope, Microsoft was still putting significant effort into Xenix. Ports to the new architectures, so the large majority of the core kernel and driver work, and extensive custom tool development were all done by Microsoft. At the time of the IBM releases, there was significant kernel divergence from the original AT&T code. The main Microsoft development products, C compiler, assembler, link, or debugger, were included with the Intel-based releases of Xenix. And, they, and there were custom internally developed tool chains for other architectures, often the latest version of tools appeared on Xenix well before they were available on DOS. The character-oriented versions of Microsoft Word and Multiplan were both ported to Xenix. Cool. MS had a dedicated Xenix documentation team which produced custom software manuals and tutorials. And there's a picture here from the cover, Introducing Xenix, a tutorial for Microsoft Xenix System 5286 operating system. As late as the beginning of 1985, there was some debate inside Microsoft whether Unix should be a 16-bit successor to DOS for a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with licensing royalties and ownership of the code, but also involving a certain amount of ego and policies. Microsoft and IBM decided to pursue OS2 instead. That marked the end of any further Xenix investment at Microsoft, and the group was less to slowly atrophy. Um, the footnote, it's mildly diverting to speculate how the world might have been different had AT&T been a bit more flexible in their worldview. Yep. The final Xenix work at Microsoft was an effort with AT&T to integrate Xenix support into the main system 5.3 source code, producing what we unimaginatively called the merged product. That sounds like a euphemism. Um, noted by the official name Unix System 5, R3.2 in the timeline above. Once that effort was completed, all Intel-based releases of Unix from the AT&T incorporated Xenix support. In return, Microsoft received royalties for every copy of Intel Unix that AT&T subsequently licensed. It, is, it will suffice, perhaps, to simply note this was a good deal for Microsoft. Oh, yeah, in retrospect. Well, yeah, that's interesting looking back uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, we looked into the future and we looked back. Let's look a little bit further, maybe into today's world in this next segment in our news roundup. Official FreeBSD package base packages. Woohoo! By none other than Baptiste Sarsin, uh, who has presented the concept or the idea about packaging the base system and distributing like any other package you can install. Uh, from uh, BSD Can Talk, I'm not sure how long ago people could probably look this up, but he had basically, since he was the architect of the new package uh, program that we all know and love, uh, so he presented that work and it took a while to get started or uh, many people did different versions. Sometimes there were too many packages that was unmanageable. Sometimes there were too few 
but now finally we have uh, some way to get these packages from officially FreeBSD built sources. And he writes in his message, Hello everyone, the project has started building and populated official packages for package base. So for people interested, just create a new repo like this. And he provides the uh, couple lines that you would add to your, uh, I think that's your uh, etc freebsd slash package.org, I think. Uh, so these few lines are similar to how you would add your uh, latest or your quarterly uh, ports packages, but this was for the FreeBSD base system. That's how you can upgrade your system. He writes, or continues to write, the current build was uh, built last Friday. Uh, everything is ready to be able to publish in regular basis. Here's my proposal for main and stable branches. So first, build everything in an endless loop to detect failures as soon as possible, and twice a day at a fixed time, publishing it under base underscore latest. Every Sunday, take the last build snapshot and publish it under the base underscore weekly snapshot as a predictable time. And so for the release engineering, uh, build it in an endless loop and publish straight each time there were changes, right? So that you have always a you know, rolling release kind of thing, or at least a, a latest version of all the changes that were committed. For end users on stable or main, the default would be to end on the base underscore weekly, does not exist yet, repo, but users can, if need, uh, they can switch to base underscore latest. So similar to the uh, ports version uh, latest or quarterly. Uh, for base underscore release underscore x for release users, base underscore release underscore zero for 14.0 for example, and of course for future releases as they will be uh, cut from the tree. All the failures will be published in this mailing list. Is it okay for you? And the replies are basically from amazing to wonderful, great news, and so this is free for everyone to test and try out and hopefully find some things they uh, maybe have missed or in your scenario maybe a bit different and yeah but this is official as it official as it can be i yeah I, so I, yeah i can't describe how happy i am about it, it it's just <laughs> tears of joy i mean on the podcast uh, that's not <laughs> too good of a thing to show um but yeah and i think batiste is the, the right person to announce this because he has been the, the main architect and others have joined efforts and uh, it wasn't him alone, but definitely he had brought that vision forward into a working system that we can now use. And I guess we will see a bit more about this as tutorials and uh, user stories will appear in future episodes about uh, package base. So um, yeah, package install all the things. Yeah, if you'd like FreeBSD, then you should start testing package base. This is the right time to this. join that. I mean, you're late, actually. You're behind. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, great stuff. Definitely thanks again for everyone who worked on this. I mean, it's not finished yet, whatever it is, um, but at least we're in a state where we can now try it out on a larger basis with officially sanctioned packages from the project that are uh, built and cut by the people uh, who run or build the rest of the operating system as well. Okay, the next article needs a pricey. So I have I have three questions I ask regularly myself and, and other people. They help form a, a check on reality. Um, the first question is, when is the last time you saw deer? Um, and for me, where I live in, in the north of Scotland, deer are quite common. This question's kind of been spoiled a bit because there's two deer living in my garden. So the last time <laughs> I saw deer was I stepped out the front door and there was a deer there. Um, I, do, I don't have a big Bambi. garden. Like I live by a very busy road. There's just deer um 
The second question is, when was the last time you thanked a computer? And and I know that we all hold computers in a in a phase of deep loathing. Um, yeah, but, mostly. You know, I have a, a Linux computer that I go cycling with. It is a, a Wahoo device. It runs Linux. Um, and a few years ago, I did a very, very long cycle, and the computer will beep every time you stop to say it's paused, and it beep again every time you start to say it's uh-huh. unpaused. And and I went to the habit of thanking the computer for doing some real tedious task for me. And I think it's always good to reach out and, and, and thank the, the things around you um, and appreciate the world. Um, this article is not not grateful for computers. Um, if you have children around you, I'm just going to read the swearing and JT can decide if he wants to not. Bleep like, he can bleep or it. something. Um, if you bleep it, JT can use 2600 hertz because that's just funnier. But it's a bit harsh, but I think it is funnier <laughs> if we do that. And you never know, we might trigger, trigger something in a phone system. Um, <laughs> so next up, we have an article on j3.sh. I don't know who wrote this. I'm sorry. I didn't. Tr- I, was, I was telling a story instead. Uh, recovering lost text by core dumping Firefox. Sometimes websites f- and erase your text. Websites either glitch, crash, freeze, or are just designed extremely poorly. And your five plus minutes of writing effort have disappeared into the ether. The usual control Z doesn't work. Neither does the back button. Your text is gone. It often feels like you might never be capable of recapturing that writing, even if you try to rethink and rewrite it. A tangible loss, some magic was gone forever. Or sometimes it's just a really annoying survey question that you answered but you hadn't hadn't really wanted to do the survey and and but but you already started and you're not backing out now and also you you just just had to know which hogwarts familiar you were even though everyone knows you're going to be that in frequent nevelones but now the browser fucked up or maybe it was the website i i don't know by the text but the text is god gone forever and i hate this earth and now I shall throw my keyboard out of the nearest window. I have spares. <laughs> this type of data loss happens to me far too often. And when it does, my internal reality turns into a hellscape. This also happens to Yingmar, and he reacts appropriately. Yell, fuck you, you piece of website. Close the tab. Do some woodworking. Sew clothes. Plant trees. Grow crops. Help refugees. And other things. All good things, yeah. I recently discovered this little trick to rescue any text that has recently been typed into Firefox. Core dumping might not seem might seem unreliable, but it has never failed me before. Find the Firefox PID. Pgrep-L, Firefox. Attach GDB to Firefox, dump its core. Pseudo GDB-B PID. Gcore Firefox.dump. Wait some time. Exit. Find your lost text in the core dump. Strings, firefox.dump, grep, phrase from your text. Remove the core dump. That's it, text recovered. <laughs> Shout out to carl.sh for inspiring me to post this. Love, J3S. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I like those philosophical questions that you posted at the beginning. That's, yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm in a kind of a truce between me and the computer, so there's no open war, but we're not at least... <sighs> fighting too much okay so i i I cycle quite a bit i i dislike doing any mechanical work on a bicycle because i own one bicycle and if i start something and it cannot be finished i don't get to go cycling Mm. and 
so I get very frustrated when things don't work with the machine, but it's not the machine's fault. It, it has no thoughts. It didn't mean to cut a big hole it, it, in my it leg. It wasn't malicious, yeah. It didn't choose to do this. And this is something which has made me bleed, is, is gouged holes in my body. And a computer's never done that. I've been mildly electrocuted, but every time this happened, it's been my fault. But I still I still appreciate the bicycle. Never thank the bicycle. Maybe I should. Yeah, but, appreciation goes a long way. Maybe it will take you a couple more miles than I, I think you need an extreme have. relationship with a computer. You either need to be seething with rage, <laughs> sitting in suspicious contempt of what will happen next, or happy. And any any contentment there, it, you're you're lying to yourself and you're gonna be betrayed. Mm sooner or later yeah, yeah it's gonna betray you as alan would say at least your hard drives <laughs> are plotting against you <laughs> okay let's look at uh, what other things we have here ah the news roundup also has fuguita 7.4 has been released and my bad pronunciation probably uh, indicates where this is coming from japan so this is it has the puffer puffy fish from openbsd and fuguita i don't get enough information to it's an open bsd live cd we oh, okay. it in the past that's why we have two hosts here on the show that we can help each other out so a new release is out uh 7.4 uh following test versions are in the test directory of every mirror and that's uh 5386 and amd64 and they have some minor fixes available Patch 001 and 002 for OpenBSD 7.4 have been applied. And uh, do we have some kind of release notes here? I don't have any. I think it's just tracking the OpenBSD release. Oh, the major one. And yeah. Then, okay. Yeah, well, if you want to try out OpenBSD without installing it first, uh, then that's certainly a good way to test if uh, certain hardware that you plan to buy or run OpenBSD uh, on uh, if uh, if it supports all the devices you have connected. Cool, that's interesting. Okay, next up on the OpenBSD journal, we have an announcement uh, on deadly.org um, contributed by Gray from the, from the four users who weren't ready for 7.4 department. A new stable release of Libra SSL is out and should be arriving on a mirror near you shortly. Brent Cook, B. Kukat's announcement reads... We have released Libra SSL 3.8.2, which will be arriving in the Libra SSL directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. This is the first stable release for the 3.8.x branch, also available with OpenBSD 7.4. It includes the following changes from 3.8.1. Portability changes fixed processor detection for CMake, uh, enabled building with OSCP check, improve CMake package detection, fixed assembly optimizations on the x64 Windows target, allow disabling warm warnings about WinCrypt override, use system arc for random on FreeBSD 12 and newer, cool, uh, documentation improvements, compatibility changes, bug fixes. The Libra SSL project continues improvement of the code base to reflect modern safe programming practices. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks to all the contributors who helped make this release possible. Thanks, Brent. Uh huh. And on the same vein, also on Undeadly Orc, we have from the RECPT to me department the OpenSMTBD 7.4.0p0 release. 
And that is, of course, uh, exciting for everyone running mail servers. And OpenSMTBD is a free implementation of the SMTP protocol with some common extensions. It allows ordinary machines to exchange emails with systems speaking the SMTP protocol. It implements a fairly large part of RFC 5321 and can already cover a large range of use cases. It runs OpenBSD or OnOpenBSD, NetBSD, FreeBSD, DragonflyBSD, Linux, and OS Ten. The archives are now available on the main site at opensmtp.org. And what's new with this release? Uh, these, uh, this one nicely connects to the previous article. This release builds on LibreSSL or OpenSSL Creator 1.1.1, optionally with LibreTLS. Changes in this release uh, avoid the truncation of filtered data lines. Okay, lines in the email body part pressed. No, not pressed, parsed through a filter were truncated to roughly line underscore max bytes, allow arguments on no op, uh, swap link auth filter arguments and filter protocol version. It was ambiguous in the case the username would contain a pipe character. Uh, add a message ID as needed for messages received on the submission port, uh, drop the engine support, and updated the bundled copy of libtls. The never-ending cleanup of the portable layer continues. This includes the complete rework of some parts, rework on a configure script, AC system extensions are used, better checks for libraries using AC search libs, dropped some useless and or redundant checks, better checks for functions, uh, shouldn't yield false positives, various simplification of the portable layer thanks to these changes, and simplified also the bootstrap script. They provide checksums to see if you have the proper version downloaded or if something's missing and provide instructions how to get it and install it. Cool. Benedict, I have terrible news. Oh, what, like, what is it? Like, like genuinely like, I'm already sitting, news. so... It's going it, to... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't tell you this if you weren't in the comfort of your home right now. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, soon, in about 50 days, it'll be 2024. <gasps> oh! Time's flying so fast when you're having fun. Yeah, yeah, it's an upsetting number. But the good news that comes with it is we get to talk about the conferences that will happen next year. Ah, yes. That's a shining thing on the dark horizon. Yeah, so second uh, up on the regular <laughs> conference slate is Asia BSDCon 2024, which will be happening in, oh, I don't know, April, May? Uh, it's, I think, end of March. Well, March 21st till 24th. That wasn't either either month I said. Yep. So <laughs> towards the end of March uh, 2024, Asia BSDCon will be happening again. This time it's going to be in Taipei, in Taiwan. Um, I The call for papers is open and the deadline is the end of this month. So you have oh, when you hear the show, two or three days. But as we record, it, 19 days. Yeah. So, if you, yeah, so if you're listening through the NSA tap, you're good. But everyone else, you might be a bit late. Yeah, or... Fire up your time machine and then, you know, send it in the past. Of course, if you use your time machine, you'd be, be very careful about um, uh, temporal, the future. temporal speeding. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I went to look at the BSD CAN website and it, it delivered plain text to me. Oh, now it's gone away. Okay, yeah, that was currently that was switching really... over from Dan to the BSD CAN organization. That yeah, is... so there was no forward. So I just on bsdcan.org, it gave me BSD CAN 2024 will be the 31st of May to the 1st of June, preceded by tutorials on the 29th to the 30th of May. So BSD CAN are working on it. Um, and yep. the year BSD CAN CFP will open um, March, I think. Hmm? I should probably know mm. that. I should probably actually know the answer to that. Um, 
But I said Asia BSCon was second up on this on the conference schedule for next year, and the first one is FOSDEM, which will happen. Um, I didn't prepare. <laughs> I think it's the first week of uh, February, but unfortunately, we won't have a BSD Dev room. They submitted an application for it, but there were other Dev rooms they deemed more important. Uh, but nevertheless, there will be BSD people at the major conference FOSDEM, and uh, fascinating. Yeah. Will there be a Dev summit? That's still the question. Uh, I haven't reached out to the folks that uh, have more power over this than I am. Uh, I haven't even made travel plans that far into the future, uh, but I should look at Asia BSDCon. Yeah, so uh, 3rd to 4th yeah. February 2024, FOSDEM, maybe? Mm, yeah, but yeah, definitely Asia BSDCon. There's a chance you uh, can see us there, or at least me, if uh, I'm actually going. But we will announce that when there's more uh, more plans that can be uh, yeah given. So yeah, mark up these dates, mark up these conferences in your calendar because what's not on the calendar tends to get forgotten. And boom, 356, 365, sorry, 365 days are already over. And you know what you can say on January 1st, the first 365 days of the year are the worst. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I used I I used to say to people that Monday mornings were the best part of the week because it's as far away as you can get from the next Monday morning. <laughs> no one ever appreciated that joke. They yeah, always it's, just like shut up. Tom. I have my my shut lecture up. on Monday morning at ten fifteen, and the students are just so sleepy, and then I'm going, oh, let's go, let's use Unix and all, and then. It's just a wake-up call for them to just pay attention. And, you should yeah. give them cotton candy next week. <laughs> yeah, I should do something to uh, wake them it, up. It, and... I, I will, I'll pay the tab for cotton candy for your Monday lecture next week. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> that's, but then, that's then you're generous. on the hook for finding it and uh, bringing it because cotton candy <laughs> yeah. for 20 people is like a lot of volume. Oh, yeah. I mean, must be attendance like class years. has already dropped. I mean, we're in the third or fourth week of uh, the, the lecture. Is it, is it an operating systems course? Oh, yeah, I would say so. It's called Unix for developers using FreeBSD. Ah, wow. You should, you should tell them that a FreeBSD developer has offered them cotton candy if they will show up to the Monday morning lecture. <laughs> oh, yeah. It can't be oh, next week, though. Be we'll, we'll figure this out offline. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll schedule. I, I'm in control of the lecture. So See, it's I worth can... going to Benedict's lecture. See, it's worth yeah. it. I don't know how many students would be listening to that English language BSD podcast who's on a German language operating system. I, I did announce that I'm doing a podcast since uh, at, at the very first lecture, a student asked, Hey, can you give us some bio of yourselves? And I'm like, Yeah, but there's not much to it. I mean, and I'm not the bragging kind, right? So I did. Uh, Has anyone asked a you for a bio before? No, that was new, actually. So I, I, I thought he was generally interested in that. Because, I mean, when I was a student, it was kind of boring. Yes, I became a professor at one point, and I did this kind of research, la, la, la. I want to listen to the lecture that you're giving, not your colorful history. At least that was my uh, takeaway from that. that. That separate topics. But, you, you, Benedict, you could be telling the students about all the amazing travel you do as being part of a BSD I project. mix that in, yeah. So on last Monday of this week, I did an introduction to uh, Vim and VI, and kind of motivated them to learn the editor because you will find them on any kind of Unix you may encounter later when you are working. And then I started, you know, what kind of features you can have, like auto-completion in Vim and all these other things that with a couple of keystrokes, you can do a lot of things. And they were like, 
that's interesting. I can't do that in Word. You should show them Arc. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I... Someone was like, uh, there's also this other editor. He probably read the Lucas book. There's an editor called Ed. And I was like, yeah, okay, welcome to the Geeks Geek Squad here. We are <laughs> not is, talking about fun. Ed too much. I don't read any Ed this year. Remember some Ed. <laughs> do some Ed. Yeah. You don't write Vim. Yeah, so the, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, we don't have any questions, so I'm just going to talk. Like, this is what you get. I mean, no, I mean, send questions, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We get we, much we structured have... random talking from Tom if you send questions. But yeah, this week that oh, I have a camera. I can see it. the Arc programming language second edition appeared. Oh, nice. Which is good because the first edition was written in 1988. That's been a while. Yeah, yeah it's been a while, and I nearly bought the first edition before, and I, I, I was <laughs> doing something which would have been better served by not using Arc. And then I read the first chapter of the book, and now I'm using awk. So in a year's time, when I have no idea how any of my data processing scripts work, it's, it's Brian Kerning's fault. And I don't, actually, I'm not upset about that. I, I'm very happy it's, about it, because it's very fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also have awk. I have a, a section, grab set and awk in my lecture, and students just hate awk with a passion Why? if I give them a couple of assignments. Wonderful. I'm not sure they don't get it. I, I think it's very powerful for ad hoc text extractions I, and it's manipulations. It's probably because they've never suffered on ad hoc text extraction. Yeah, that's so what I give great. them is like a CSV file. That's a classical thing. They should, you know, give me lines or columns 3, 15, and 25 and do some magic numbers with them and do some calculations. That's easy. That's much easier than in Excel. Well, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And from I'm, there, I'm, I'm, the very, I'm very annoyed at GNU plot right now because it's not a real Unix tool. Um, oh, yeah. Because it won't, it can't read data from standard in in a convenient way. If you yeah. want to plot multiple line plots, you have to feed it the same standard in again and again and again, mm. which is just infuriating. But yeah, apart from that, I, I have a very smooth toolchain now, powered entirely by Awk. I was doing Awk on Linux today. It was great fun. It's very powerful, yeah. Yeah, you should get them on Awk. The tutorial introduction is only like 10 pages long. You could just rip that off. You could buy the book, Benedict. Yeah, I have my then... own slide deck, and I guess the professor that I took the course over had also written, or not written, uh, read the book and extracted the book probably came out a couple like of last week. Yeah. So you could, you could get the updated book. The second edition. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, I could probably uh, do something, do some reading over the Christmas holiday. That ah, I just get it. So. I mean, like, I, it was like half an hour. And then, I mean, I've only on chapter two. I've not read any of the in-depth yeah. stuff. Because from yeah, there, just... once they have the basic grep, uh, not grep syntax, arc syntax on, it's fairly easy to learn D-Trace then. Yeah. Because that's yeah. super simple. I don't know why I didn't know more arc than I do every time I've used D-Trace. It would have made things a lot easier. Wow. That's still my dream for the lecture, to, to do at least a little bit of D-Trace at the end to kind of show them, hey, you can let the operating system basically drop the pants and look but under you, the you hood everywhere. You for programmers. So, yeah. so is this, what sort of programmers? Well, we do a little bit of shout scripting and uh, we do Ansible later, which is kind of programming of mm. sorts. And by then they're kind of Unix agnostic anyway. Uh, and I'm always thinking we should do a little bit more of uh, another... Pro I mean, Arc is also programming in certain ways. But I think one more thing like D-Trace would so kind of round you, up the whole if lecture. If you wrote any C, like if there were C parts of the course, then D-Trace would be really easy to understand. Because okay. like, 
lots of the time you get error values from C APIs and from the operating system, which are inscrutable. Like you don't yeah. know where things are breaking. And sometimes you can just use dtrace to figure that out. You can just be like, run a speculative trace and watch error know. And you can watch error know run through the kernel and then you get an answer and you're like, okay, cool. Now I know what's going on. But yeah, mm. no, okay. It's more... Uh, yeah, they often ask, hey, are we doing some kernel work or kernel debugging of sorts? And I'm like, that's not so easy. Uh, that would be probably its own oh, lecture. I, I, you can fly me over. I'll do a guest lecture for a free trip to Germany. Oh, that could... I could totally arrange that. We have a bit of money oh, no, left in the budget. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I could also bring you in via video, right? It doesn't have to be on site. Oh, that's, uh, that's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have to do a hackathon oh, then? I don't know. Like, as long as you're paying for my travel, it's, it's different. Well, easy enough. <laughs> Since it's not that far that's, away. <laughs> that's how you sell an operating systems course. Yeah, Free yeah. Oh, it's recorded. Travel. Oh, gee. <laughs> Yeah, I think I can sing in the, uh, uh, the the lecture room to collect some money. So <laughs> the students will pay for your travel. No, they won't. <laughs> uh, but would they be happy we'll with the lecture in here. English? Because I definitely can't. Oh, yeah. The lecture, uh, the whole lecture yeah, is in English. I mean, if you can listen to my English, then everyone is happy. So, And, of course, in the first few weeks, they're like, ah, can I actually ask a question? My, my school English is not that good. Just answer the damn question. I'm totally understanding what you mean. Okay, so normally at this point of the show, we would be uh, soliciting for, we would be answering feedback questions and comments, show ideas, stories, or just anything at all. Um, and we get these because people send them to feedback at bsdnow.tv, mail to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's the whole URL in our document. It, I don't know why we put Markdown in a Google Doc. I never want an answer, it's fine. Um, it, it does we, magic in the background. We don't have any questions this week. I mean, we have a lot next week. We could have moved them, but we just didn't because we want to ask you for questions because we need to ask every so often. Um, send us our questions and comments and feedback and show ideas. And if yeah. you like poems, What are your answers like, to, yeah, for example, what are your answers to the questions that Tom uh, asked You, you earlier know you get nonsense answers, right, Benedict? It will be last Tuesday and never for like everyone. Yeah, well, but we can filter the. Out I mean, the there's best a very ones, important question right? we should get in response to my three <laughs> questions, and uh, I'm very interested to hear it. The the other thing you can do to help contribute to the show and, and build it to be stronger and include more content you want is you can join our Telegram group chat uh, by going oh, to yes. t.me slash bsdnow. It is a remarkably quiet Telegram chat. I have not muted it yet. So it might be a nice place to hang out. This is how uh, this is how the podcast, the Mac Folklore Radio, which is a wonderful podcast where they, they read old Mac stuff, um, got me to join their Discord because they said it was very quiet and it is very quiet and it's it's just great. And that's how the Telegram chat is. So you could come join us there. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, why not? Get in touch. I mean, that's what this thing is hello. for. What? BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated, so that band and then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. 
Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. All right, we leave you with this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and we will have another one. I have a look into the future very briefly. Another one next week. Bye. See you then.